So Christmas is uh, how many days away? 26, all right, exactly, 26 days. So you excited? Yeah, some of you, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, all right, all right. So for the next four Sundays, we're taking a break, as Johnny said, from our study in the Gospel of John. And we're gonna focus on four biblical themes commonly associated with Advent. Now, some of us who didn't grow up in traditions where Advent was practiced, but some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you grew up in more liturgical churches uh, like uh, Catholics and Methodists and, and Lutherans and that kind of thing. But, but basically, Advent is symbolized by a wreath with five candles. You can see we're not lighting candles each week, but there's three purple candles, a blue candle, uh, excuse, excuse me, uh, three purple candles, a pink candle, and then the white Christ candle in the, uh, in the middle. And uh, it's typically lit. The white candle is on Christmas Eve. But the candles represent how God's light has come into the world through the birth of his son. And the four outer candles represent the period of waiting that, uh, that, that, that hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting that uh, Israel endured and a lot of that enduring was at the hands of, uh, of, of their enemies. And so uh, there were hard times of disaster and oppression and injustice and violence at the hand of their enemies. And they were waiting all this time for the promises made by the prophets to come true uh, that God would send uh, his son. And so these themes of hope and peace and love and joy show up in the promises made by the prophets that God would one day send his son, the Messiah, to set right all this wrong in the world. And, and again, you can see we're not lighting the candles, but we are going to uh, look at these four biblical themes over the next uh, four Sundays. And our focus this morning is on hope. Now, I imagine if we, the adults in the room, if we were to compare notes in terms of our experiences with Christmas, I would imagine that as adults, our experiences would, would be very different from one another. But more than likely, if we compared our experiences as children, we would have a lot in common because most of us remember the agonizing, agonizing wait for Christmas to come, like counting down the days until Christmas. And, and, and uh, I imagine some of you had parents that had a calendar up on the wall somewhere, and uh, from Thanksgiving to Christmas, they were marking off those days, and as you searched through the Sears catalog and you were circling the toys that you wanted and all those kind of good things, you're marking off those days. And uh, as a kid, it just seemed like it took forever for Christmas to, to to arrive, and in, 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 and in those last few days before Christmas, they were like the longest days of the year. But now that you're an adult, when somebody says, can you believe it, it's three weeks till Christmas, what do you do? I mean, you panic, like, I mean, isn't that weird? I mean, for kids, the days go by way too slow, but for adults, the days go by way too fast. But the thing is, no matter how long it seemed to take to get to Christmas, we always got there because there was the promise. There was always the promise of the certainty of Christmas morning. But still, you had to wait. Now, as you may, uh, what's, what's interesting about this is that this dynamic of waiting and waiting and waiting is the same dynamic that set up the very first Christmas. And you may know this, or this may be new information, but 
generation after generation after generation, many, many generations, in ancient Israel, there was always a handful or a group or a remnant of Jewish people who waited every single day for the arrival, not of Santa Claus, but for God's promised Messiah. In ancient Israel, every single, in every single generation, there was a group of people who lived their lives day after day after day, who woke up every single day hoping this could be the day that M Messiah arrives. But unlike the certainty of our Christmas, I mean, we know the date, December 25th, just 26 days from now, but unlike the certainty of our coming Christmas for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, generation after generation after generation, people waited and waited for Messiah to come and nothing happened. I mean, 99.999% of the people who waited and waited and waited for the coming of Messiah, they died. And for them, there was no fulfillment of that promise. But still generation after generation, there was a small group of people who prayed and waited and hoped and remained faithful to God and his promises. Now, I want to talk about hope today, and specifically, I want to talk about a tension that all of us have faced or are facing or will face as it relates to hope, and it's the tension of trying to maintain hope when there is no visible or tangible, obvious reasons to keep on hoping? Like, how do you maintain hope in what seems to be a hopeless situation? Like, if you've ever placed your hope in something or someone, and that something comes crashing down, or that someone walks out on you, then you understand the tension that I'm talking about. If you've ever stood at an altar and you promised each other till death do us part, but it actually turned out to be till someone else comes along and your marriage fell apart, then you understand this tension. Or if you were promised to be married and he or she broke off the engagement with little or to no explanation, I mean, how do you maintain hope in that hopeless situation? Or if you were promised something at work and you worked hard. I mean, you worked harder than most. And then your boss didn't make good on that promise. So your hopes for that job or that new opportunity or that promotion or, or that move, whatever it was, it just didn't happen like you hoped. Then, yeah, you understand the tension of what it means to try to maintain hope in a hopeless situation. Or if you, or maybe you had uh, amazing athletic ability and you had high hopes of getting uh, a scholarship or even, even going pro at some point, but then you were injured or something happened and you lost your scholarship, then you know about the tension between hope and hopelessness. Or if you're a parent and you had high aspirations for a son or a daughter, daughter but they got hooked up with, uh, with the wrong group and now they're very different than what you hoped that they would be, then you know the tension that I'm talking about. I could go on and on, but, but let me just ask you, where are you feeling this tension today? It, it, it might be a health issue, or it, it might be a health issue with one of your children. Maybe this election. Where's the tension in your life? Now let me take this one step further. Because in the midst of this tension between hope and hopelessness, have you ever found yourself saying, why even try? 
I mean, wh why go on? Why study? Why, why work this hard for nothing? I mean, you, you ever felt that way? I mean, I have felt that way. If you've ever said that out loud or in your heart, like, what's the point? Like, what's the point of loving people who don't love you back? What's the point of making commitments to people who have no commitment to you? What's the point of investing your life in a company that has no, that has no plans to invest in you? And, and, and this is the big one. What's the point of trusting God when God doesn't seem to come through for you? I mean, when, when God doesn't answer your prayers, when God is silent, when God seems so distant, when God hasn't done anything for you lately, what's the point? And if you've ever found yourself saying something like that, thinking something like that, feeling like that, then you bumped into the inevitable question that every follower of Jesus will ask at some point, and that is, how do you maintain hope? Why maintain hope when there's no visible evidence to keep hoping? Now, the good news is, if you have or are feeling that way, you're not alone, because Every Christian will wrestle with this tension between hope and hopelessness at some point in their life, especially when something in their life doesn't turn out the way they hoped. And the question is, when you find yourself in that place, what do you do? What do you do? How do you maintain hope in a hopeless situation? Well, the good news is the Christmas story actually gives us an answer to that question. So take your Bible, paper or digital, and find your way to Isaiah chapter nine. And uh, it's okay to use the table of contents if you want, uh, or you, it's uh, easier to use version on your phone or your iPad. But as you're trying to find your way there, just take one second and look at the screen. This, this is gonna seem like a random question, but what is this glass? Say it out loud, what is this glass? Half full. Okay, the, the vast majority of you said half full. I heard just the faint rumblings of some of you saying half empty, half empty. Now, everyone knows this illustration, right? I mean, because it's kind of a basic personality test. People who see the glass half full are called what? Optimist, and people who see the glass as half empty are typically called pessimists. So an optimist... Optimists are people who, 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 who see the bright side of everything. Like if an, if an optimist walks into the room and there's a big pile of manure in the middle of the floor, the optimist says, man, there's gotta be a, a pony in here somewhere. The pessimist walks into the same room, sees the manure in the middle of the floor and says, oh man, what a mess. I'm gonna have to clean it up. I mean, that's the pessimist for you. So now here's the question. If I'm a follower of Jesus then which outlook should I adopt? That's a question. Optimist, how many people say optimist? How many people say pessimist? Okay, well, now, yeah, yeah. if we believe in a God who creates an amazing world, a God who redeems his people out of slavery from Egypt, a God who raises his son from the dead, it seems like then pessimism ought to be off the table, right? Hmm. Maybe not. I would actually argue that a Christ follower should be neither. Optimism is a little too optimistic because the scripture says a whole lot about how broken and screwed up we are. And the and scriptures tell us that things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. And sometimes that's true in our own lives. It certainly was true in Jesus' life. 
And pessimism is too pessimistic because we, we do know that God can do the impossible, right? So I would argue that Christians should be neither optimist or pessimist, but I would argue that Christians should be hopeful. You see, being hopeful isn't the same thing as optimism. Optimism tries to convince itself that things are not as bad as they look, but the fact is, sometimes things really are as bad as they look. Sometimes there is absolutely no evidence that things are gonna improve, so then, then what? Well, hope looks at the evidence and says that things don't look good, they don't look good at all, but I'm gonna look beyond the evidence, I'm gonna look beyond what I see right now because my hope is built, it's re it rests on something greater than what my present circumstances are telling me. Hope for a follower of Jesus is based on God's promises. And even more than that, listen, hope is based on God's freedom. God's creativity to fulfill his promises in ways we don't expect, to fulfill his promises in ways that might surprise us, in ways that we would never have predicted, and that's what we see in Isaiah chapter nine. Now this morning I'm gonna read from the New Living Translation. And uh, Isaiah 9, 1, says, nevertheless, the time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Now, what is all that about? So, okay, let's stop and let's get our bearings. Isaiah was preaching this about 700 years before Jesus. Isaiah was one of Israel's most prominent prophets, and, and at the time in which Isaiah ministered in Israel, this was a very, very dark chapter in Israel's history. Israel's rulers, for the most part, had become corrupt, and they had allowed flagrant injustice and the oppression of the poor to run rampant in Israelite cities and communities, and most people had turned away from Yahweh, and they had turn to worshiping foreign gods. And Isaiah is rebuking the people for their sin and the rebellion against Yahweh. He's warning them that if they don't repent, if they stay on the path they're on, then God is gonna bring judgment on them. So Isaiah is warning them that disaster is coming. And that's what we're reading about in verse one, that distress and darkness and despair had come upon the people of Israel living in the territories of Zebulun and Naphtali. So what's he talking about specifically though there? Well, Isaiah warned the people that one of the big bad empires of their day, the Assyrian Empire, would come and ransack different parts of Israel and this would be a form of God's judgment on the people and you can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 29, which is on the screen. During the reign of Pekah, king of Israel, the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser. Now I'm wondering what was going on with his parents when he named him Tiglath. Yeah, Tiggy here. But anyway, the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, attacked Israel again, and he captured the towns of Ejon, Abel-Bet, Makkah, Genoa, Kadesh, and Hazor. He also conquered the regions of Gilead, Galilee, and all of Naphtali, 
and he took the people to Assyria as captives. So that's what Isaiah is talking about here. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. That is, God will bring gloom and doom and distress on his own people because of their disobedience, and it will be like, it'll be like somebody just turns the light out, and there'll be darkness, and this pitch black gloom, darkness, and despair, this where is God kind of confusion will settle on these lands. But is that the end of the story? No, verse one says, in the past God allowed these lands to be humbled, but it won't last forever. He says, in the future, God will turn the lights back on. Remember the Advent candles? They represent the light. Okay, so, so look at this. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. What does that mean? What, what will it be like when the lights are turned back on? Verse three, God will enlarge the nation of Israel and his people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder for you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. What is that about? Well, do you remember the story of Gideon and how Gideon and, and, and 300 soldiers routed the entire army of the Midianites and defeated them? God is saying, just like I did with Gideon, I'll do again with you. I'll do it again. Verse five, the boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned and they will be fuel for fire. This is all very powerful imagery. Yahweh is promising to defeat the enemy. The yoke of slavery will be removed. God's people will be oppressed no more. And all the bloody times of war will be done away with. There'll be no more war. And so when God turns the lights back on, it will be a time of joy and peace and victory and freedom. But how will that joy and peace and victory and freedom be realized? What's going to happen specifically to turn the light on? Verse six, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given and the government will rest on his shoulders. In other words, a king will be born. The lights will come on when the king comes. This king who's coming to set things right well, what's the king gonna be like? Well, he's given all these symbolic names. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, which doesn't mean he's a good therapist. No, counselor refers to plan planning and ruling militarily and politically. He's going to accomplish wonders through his wise rule. And he will also be called Mighty God and Everlasting Father. Wait, 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 now wait. Who will be called mighty God and everlasting father? Who? The child. This king to be born. Now think about that. The coming king will be the very embodiment of Yahweh, the invisible God. The mighty, the very embodiment of God's mighty presence among his people, as in Emmanuel, God with us. And he will be called the prince of peace. 
the prince of shalom. And shalom is the Hebrew word which means abundance and harmony and wholeness and well-being. The Messiah will bring that to the people. And, verse 7, the greatness of his government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Amen? Amen. So when will Yahweh turn the lights back on? It'll happen when the child who will be king is born. A king from the line of David is coming and he will be the very embodiment of God's presence on earth and he will bring peace. Peace. He will put an end to war. He'll bring justice and freedom and joy. It's a very powerful promise. The promise of a better future for God's people. You see, there's, in Isaiah's day, there's no reason for optimism. But Isaiah holds out this bold promise of hope, the hope of a king who is coming to be born who will one day set right all that is wrong in this world. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus, you know that this promise points forward to Jesus Christ. Christ is the Messiah. <clears throat> and you see that this is the clear testimony of the New Testament writers, and especially the gospel writers. Because in the gospels we see that the child is born, the son is given, and he grows up, and he begins his ministry, and Matthew, the gospel writer, tells us the significance of where he begins his ministry. Now, if you're following along in our CBR journal readings, you read this this past week. Matthew chapter four, look at this. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth and then left there and moved to Capernaum beside the sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, hint, hint. And this fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah, verse 15. In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light and for those who lived in a land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. And from then on, Jesus began to preach the light. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Matthew and the conviction of all the early Christians is that Jesus, when Jesus began his ministry in Galilee, that was the beginning of the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. But think back to Isaiah 9. Assyria conquered Israel, carted them off into slavery, and the light was turned off. And Israel remained an oppressed people under the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and in Jesus' day, under the Romans. The land was dark for 700 years. And then King Jesus comes and Yahweh turns the light back on. But that's 700 years of darkness. That's a long time to wait. But for 700 years, there was a small group of Israelites that held fast to the hope that was found in Isaiah chapter 9, even though there was no visible, tangible evidence 
that that promise would ever come true. Think hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, generation after generation after generation, think about all the people who died, 99.99% of the people who waited for the Messiah and were trusting in the promise died without living, being able to live into the fulfillment of the promise. But still, some prayed and waited and remained hopeful and faithful until the day they died. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible to hold on to hope when there's no evidence that anything's ever gonna change? I wanna introduce you to two people who were a part of that hopeful, faithful remnant of Jews who never gave up hope, even though there was no evidence to keep their hope alive. Turn to Luke chapter one, and the story that we're about to read sets up the familiar Christmas story in Luke chapter two, right? Okay. Luke chapter one, verse five. When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah, and he was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth, who was also from the priestly line of Aaron. Okay, so, so, so during the time of King Herod, and King Herod's the guy that had all the baby boys killed uh, around Christmas time you know, to try to stop the promised king from coming, so during his reign, there was this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they both came from the priestly line of Israel, and basically that means they were both preacher's kids. Okay, and they came, they both came from a long line of preacher's kids. Like generation after generation after generation of priests and preachers going all the way back to the time of Moses and Aaron. And verse six, Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in God's eyes, careful to obey all the Lord's commandments and regulations. So they're doing everything right. They're giving themselves to God's work, they're obeying the commandments, and not just the 10 big ones, but all 613 commandments in the Torah. That's a lot, and they are righteous and blameless in God's eyes. There is no higher praise that the scripture can give to someone but to say that. And here's what's amazing. They were doing what they were doing as followers of God based on promises that were given way, 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 way back. I mean, really all the way back to Abraham, where God promised Abraham and his descendants that he would bless those who bless Israel and that he would, con uh, he would curse those who dishonor Israel. But for the last 700 years, God had not cursed the nations that had dishonored Israel. He had let darkness settle on the land. God had done nothing for the nation of Israel lately. And yet, these two get up day after day and they live their lives as if Christmas is coming tomorrow. They live their lives hopeful that God will actually fulfill his promise to send his Messiah. But there's no evidence that God's gonna do any of that. And yet, they remain faithful. And so, we wanna just kind of peer into their lives and say, okay, so Zachariah and Elizabeth, um, you're such good people. I mean, righteous, blameless, faithful. How's that working out for you? Verse seven, here's where we pick up the tension in their lives. 
They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to conceive and they were both very old. Okay, wait, 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 let me get this straight. You're getting up day after day after day waiting for the Messiah and you're serving in the temple and you're being good people and you're missing out on opportunities that everybody else takes for granted and this God that you're so faithful to leaves you without an heir, without kids. Oh, and in that culture, it was always the woman's fault. If she couldn't, if, if she couldn't have a child, it's always the woman's fault. And I don't mean this to be offensive, but in that culture, that's about all that women were good for having babies. Women had no, no standing in the community, no political standing. They generally couldn't work. They were not taught the Bible, the Torah, like the men were, and they were almost always uneducated. And not only that, there was this religious stigma that God granted children to women, and God decided who would have children and who would not, and which babies lived and which babies died. And so for a woman to not be able to get pregnant, there was a sense in which God had chosen to curse her for some unknown reason. And so Elizabeth, this righteous woman who lived blameless before God, all through her young years, all through her middle years, and now in her old age, she remained faithful to God, but at the same time, she was carrying disappointment and shame and disgrace. You see, God hadn't done anything for Zach and Liz lately. We find out later in the story that they had prayed, and they had prayed the desperate prayers of any couple who wants to have a child, and God had said no. So Elizabeth lived with the shame and the pain of being childless all her life. You gotta get this. They stayed faithful to God even though God didn't give them the thing they wanted most in this life, a child. They stayed faithful to God's promise to send a Messiah, like this future in the sky by and by, despite their personal disappointment with God. And this is where the tension between hope and hopelessness can undo you. This is when God is so quiet and so inactive and so seemingly silent that you look around and you go, why am I doing this? Like, why am I attending? Why am I serving? Why am I giving? Why am I still believing? Why am I obeying? Why am I missing out? Why am I not moving in with her? Why am I not taking the money? Why don't I just leave? Why in the world am I continuing to live day after day after day as if there's something bigger out there than me? as if there's something to the Bible, as if there's something to all this talk about God and God's love, when nothing's happening, when God hasn't answered my prayers, when I'm not getting anything out of this. And many, many, many Jews during all those long, silent years turned away from temple worship, they turned away from belief in God, and they integrated into Greek life and Roman life, and they turned away from God because they had given up hope, but not Zachariah and Elizabeth. They remained faithful and hopeful to God's promises, even when there was no visible, tangible evidence that they would see God's promise fulfilled in their lifetime. Even when they personally experienced a lifetime of disappointment and disgrace because they couldn't have 
children. That's hard. Verse 8, let's read the rest of the story. One day, Zechariah was serving God in the temple, for his order was on duty that week. And as was the custom of the priest, he was chosen by lot to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. And the incense was being burned. As the incense was being burned, a, a great crowd stood outside. While Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing at the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear and when he saw the angel, but the angel said, what does angels always say? Do not fear. Yeah, so somebody tells me, yeah, I had an angel appear to me last night. You go, really? Yeah. Well, tell me about that. Oh, it was so beautiful and peaceful and calm. Sorry, you didn't see an angel. I mean, if you see an angel, you're gonna drop to your knees on your face and you're gonna be shaking and the angel is gonna have to say, get up, don't fear, I'm not here to hurt you. I mean, but, so, so the angel said, don't be afraid, Zachariah. Now look at this, God has heard your prayer. God has heard your prayer. After all those years, your wife Elizabeth will give you a son and you are to name him John and you will have great joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. Now, he must never touch wine or any other alcoholic drink, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth and he will turn many Israelites back to the Lord their God. And he will be a man with the spirit of power of Elijah and he will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. And Zechariah said to the angel, well, how, how can I be sure this is gonna happen? I mean, I'm, I'm an old man now and my, my wife's had lots of birthdays. And the angel said, I love this. Hey, chump, look, I'm, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And it was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I had to say, you're gonna be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at their proper time. Now, you see what he's saying? For my words will be fulfilled at their proper time. 700 years earlier, God knew the date that he had set in eternity past, a date as certain as December the 25th, but nobody knew it. And now, in the fullness of time, God's promise was about to be fulfilled. Verse 21, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah to come out of the sanctuary, wondering why he was taking so long. And when he finally did come out, he couldn't speak to them, and they realized from his gestures and his silence that he must have seen a vision in the sanctuary. When Zechariah's week of service in the temple was over, he returned home, and miracle upon miracles, soon afterward, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and went into seclusion for five months, and then she said, she said this, look at this, how kind the Lord is, he has taken away my disgrace, the disgrace that she had lived with all of her life of having no children. Now, and just so you know, at the end of this chapter in verses 67 to 79, that you see that Zechariah clearly understands what all of this means. He clearly understands the role that his son John, John the Baptist, 
is going to plague because John is going to be the one to announce and identify the Messiah's coming. The Messiah who, verse 79, who will give light to those in darkness and those in the shadow of death, who will guide our feet in the way of peace. What scripture is he quoting? Isaiah 9. That's the promise in which he and Elizabeth and generations before them had placed their hope. And this is just the warm-up act, of course. I mean, this is the pre-concert before the concert. But this is solid evidence that God was gearing up to do what he planned to do all along. God had this date set on the calendar. God always knew the certainty of the date of the very first Christmas. And here's how this story concludes, and the next story begins, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin whose name was Mary, who was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Wow, what a story. Now, all of this highlights a very important core component of biblical hope. Because you see, as followers of Jesus, I'm not a pessimist and I'm not an optimist, but I have hope in God's promises. I, have also, I also have hope in God's freedom to fulfill his promises in ways that I would never have anticipated, in ways that I would never expect or even prefer. I mean, seriously, do you want it? Do you want God to take 700 years to answer one of your prayers? One more time, biblical hope trusts that God will be faithful to his promises, but biblical hope also means I have to be content with God fulfilling those promises in ways that I would have never anticipated or expected or predicted. And sometimes that can feel like he's not faithful to his promises. It can sometimes feel like he's absent or silent or not doing anything for me. But is that true? No, 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 no. God is always working for our highest good and his highest glory. He's just doing it in a way that's very different than we would prefer. Very different from the way that we would do it if we were God. And I'm glad we're not. This is part of the tension. This is part of the wrestling match between hope and hopelessness. In the scriptures we've looked at today, you've got the promise of hope in Isaiah 9, and then you've got two people waiting on God to fulfill his promises and it's taking a long time for those promises to be fulfilled. I mean, the timeline is totally not what you would expect if you were living when Isaiah preached Isaiah 9. I mean, no one in Isaiah's day would have expected it would take 700 years for God to keep this promise. But not only that, if you really listen to Isaiah 9, if you read it carefully, you know that when the child is born and the son is given, not all of those promises were fulfilled, right? Well, at least not in the way that we would expect. Like when Jesus comes on the scene, does Jesus fulfill these promises in a straightforward, literal manner? I mean, does Jesus come and just totally trounce on the enemy and the oppressor? Well, it depends on, it depends on 
who the oppressor is and who the enemy is. I mean, he did not come and trounce on Rome and overthrow Rome as the Messiah. That, just like Zachariah and Elizabeth and John the Baptist and all the disciples, that's what they expected because they were reading Isaiah 9 literally. But Jesus does spend all of those three years of his kingdom of God mission battling the enemy, doesn't he? You see, Jesus comes and he deals with a very different enemy, a darker, deeper enemy of evil that's behind not just Rome, but behind all human brokenness and sin. And Jesus invades that enemy's territory and he shatters his power. Well, how does he do that? How does Jesus come and rule on a throne and shatter the power of the enemy? I mean, that's what it says in Isaiah 9, 4. He's gonna shatter the rod of the oppressor. How does Jesus do that? I mean, does Jesus take the government on his shoulders, as it says in verse six in Isaiah 9? Well, he sure does. He takes a Roman execution rack on his shoulders And in dying on the cross, in a very surprising, unanticipated way, he absorbs the pain and the sin of the world into himself, defeating its power. And when he rises from the dead and ascends back into heaven and sits down on a throne at God's right hand, who would have thought that would be how God would be faithful to his promises? You see what I'm saying here? These promises were fulfilled in a little bit different way in Jesus' first coming, but at his second coming, they will be fulfilled as literally as they're written. And, 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 and you see, that's when the complete fulfillment will happen, at his second coming. It's the complete fulfillment of which we are hoping and waiting as we look for him to come back and take us to himself. So again, let's put this up on the screen. For a follower of Jesus, hope is based on God's promises, based on God being faithful to his promises, and hope is based on God's freedom to fulfill his promises in ways that we don't expect, in ways that might surprise us, in ways that we can never predict. And again, that's a part of biblical hope, and that's the tension and the wrestling match we sometimes feel as God's people. It's certainly the tension that Zacharias and Elizabeth felt, but this is our story. This is our dilemma as well. So, when God doesn't come through for you like you hoped, do you stay or do you go? Will you continue to believe or will you chuck your faith? Do you stay married? Do you do the shady deal? Do you maintain your integrity? Or you just do what everybody else is doing because after all, it's just business. Do you take matters into your own hands or do you you leave things in God's hands? You see, in every generation, there's a remnant of Christians who have to decide whether or not they will remain faithful to God and the promises of God despite the fact that there is no visible, tangible evidence that God is working on their behalf. No visible, tangible evidence that anything is gonna change. No visible, tangible evidence that God will keep his ultimate promise to send Jesus a second time to set right what is wrong in the world. And the question is, Fellowship Greenville, Will you be a part of that remnant? 
In these uncertain times, will you remain faithful to God even if what you're hoping for doesn't happen for you? You see, you see, the way that you and I maintain hope when there's no visible, tangible evidence to keep hope alive is that we trust in and we rely on and we rest in the faithfulness of God to keep his promises, the faithfulness of the God of the Bible. And these scriptures that we've looked at today show us that our God keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. I mean, yeah, 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 sometimes it takes longer than we expect. And yes, sometimes the fulfillment of his promises is a bit different than we would have predicted, but God is faithful to keep his promises. And if you want a hope that remains hopeful, even when life feels hopeless, you have to trust that God is always at work, whether you see it or not, whether it looks like you expect or not, or whether it happens for you in this life or the next life. You trust that if God says no to you, if he says no to the thing you want most, then you trust that that no is actually God saying yes to something better. Hope looks beyond what's going on in your life right now. Hope looks beyond what's going on in our country right now. What's going on in our world right now. Looks beyond it. And then you stake your life on the fact that you belong to a promise-keeping God. That's part of the Christmas story. Amen? Amen.